Many years ago, over 40 years ago, actually, before the flood, I was a student at Michigan State University, and I came to faith in Christ uh, during, after my freshman year, and one of the things we used to do at that time was to try to engage people in conversation about uh, the Christian faith. We would do it by taking a religious survey, and it was simply a survey that would ask uh, various ideas about uh, relationship with God, who God is or what he is, and, and that kind of thing. Unless you think there was any kind of bait and switch involved, there really wasn't because we would publish the results of the survey every year in the campus newspaper of things that we had learned from it. But one of the questions that we would ask, I'll never forget, it was a question that went like this, on what basis do you think God will accept you or reject you? And back at that time in the early 1970s, one answer stood out above all others, and the answer was, I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments. Most people at that time were aware that there was a list of rules that God himself had given on Mount Sinai, and that uh, they expressed the most important things God wanted us to know about life and how we should live our lives. And they figured that on that basis, God would make some determination of our acceptability in the end. Now, going on 45 years later, many uh, things have changed. It used to be that the university was thought to be a place where people were free to talk about those things because it was a time in life when people were thinking about the most important aspects of life and there was little offense taken to it. And today, attitudes have changed in many ways. Attitudes about God and about life are very different. And if the same question were to be asked today, I don't think that as many people would answer it by saying, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Today, I'm convinced more people would simply say, I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to live a good life and treat other people well. But I want you to note that those answers are really the same. Whether or not you say, I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments, or I try to uh, treat others well, you're saying there's some kind of moral code on which I'm going to be Uh, accepted or unaccepted, and I think my treatment of others is the basis of that moral code that God is going to use. Now, why is it, if you ask that question almost anywhere in the world, if you believe there is a God, on what basis would he accept you? um, Why is it that people answer it by saying something like, there's some standard of behavior some way of thinking and living and relating to other people that God is going to use to make that determination. Well, I think the reason is that horizontally that works. I mean, when we go through life, I mean, the relationship we have with other people, we know, we learn from our parents and teachers and employers that, that there are things that are going to determine whether we receive more opportunity and more responsibility or less, and it's basically the way that we relate to and treat other people. Our hearts tell us that we are responsible that way when we go through life, and so we figure we must be responsible to God in the same way. And if we know anything about the Bible, we may know that God has given rules for life, and our assumption is that's the basis on which we'll be acceptable. Now that is, that basic idea that behavior governs acceptability is what lies in the background of the letter to the Galatians. Paul was a Jewish man raised from his birth 
in a devout Jewish family. He was trained under the, one of the most famous of the rabbis of the first century named Gamaliel. And he believed that the Jewish people had an advantage over everyone else in the world. And the advantage was that God himself had spoken to them on Mount Sinai and given them his law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, which tell us exactly what God expects of human life. And so he figured that everyone else who didn't have the law, that is the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, were um, at a disadvantage and they were called sinners. It's used that way in this passage. Paul says to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And while that sounds particularly offensive, it was not really meant to be so. It was simply descriptive of a person who doesn't have the law, who doesn't have any guidance from God as to how he or she ought to live. And Jesus himself, in fact, actually used the word sinner in the same way. But here's what happened to Paul, who was brought up with this sense of moral advantage. He was confronted by Jesus, as we've noted the last few weeks, as he was traveling on behalf of his ancestral religion to uh, Damascus, Syria, he was confronted by Jesus who brought him to a different understanding of these things and he began to preach something as a result of that completely different. It's called in this passage that we look at justification through faith. The word justification means to be acquitted of sin. Uh, uh, it's, It's basically a legal word as though a guilty criminal or a criminal were standing before a judge and the judge pronounces the person not guilty. He's acquitting him of sin. And this says that God acquits us of sin before the throne of his justice through faith in Christ. Now, that teaching, justification through faith, is what we want to think about for a few minutes. And it basically brings two objections. And the two objections are what this book deals with at length. The first objection has to do with the law itself. The law was given by God on Mount Sinai and it expressed God's will for human life. Paul said later in the Bible, in the book of Romans, that the law is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. So the objection to this idea uh, of justification through faith is if you set aside the law as the basis of acceptability, how could you do that? The law is eternal. It was given by God. It, it, It expresses his will. So how can you say that God does not accept people on the basis of their behavior, on the basis of their works, or the keeping of some moral code? How could you ever assert that, Paul? That's what God has expressed to us in the Bible. That's dealt with in chapters 3 and 4 of this book, and so we're going to be looking at it at length from different perspectives. But the second objection is this. It's if you do away with the law, people will figure that the gospel is just a license for sin. If you say God does not accept you on the basis of your behavior, he accepts you on the basis of Jesus Christ and his behavior and his death for your sins, people will figure that Being justified through faith is a free pass to live however you want. And that's really answered in chapter 5 of this book, so we're going to come into it later in the summer. We'll set it aside for now. Now, what I want to note is in the first part of this passage, um, it's really a completion of what we've looked at the last couple of weeks. A long section in which Paul defends himself against certain opponents who were saying that his teaching was wrong. 
And apparently they said that his teaching was derived from others, was from the apostles in Jerusalem, and that his authority came from them as well. So he was dependent on them. And as we looked at the last two weeks, he very carefully dismantles what they're saying by pointing out that when he came to faith in Christ in this dramatic encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, He went away for three years and didn't go to Jerusalem, didn't have contact with the leaders of the Christian movement. When he finally went to Jerusalem three years later, he only saw Peter, no one else, and he was only there for a short period of time. And then 14 years after his conversion, when he went up to Jerusalem, he went up for a specific purpose. And the apostles at that point confirmed that his message was the same as theirs. And they acknowledged that the ministry God had given him to preach the gospel to the non-Jewish people, to the Gentiles, was something that he should go on and continue to do. He didn't exist because of their authority. And he wasn't carrying out his commission or his ministry because they had given it to him. His message came from Jesus. And he finishes that whole line of reasoning by saying, finally, and if you want to know that this message came to me from Jesus and not from anyone else... I withstood Peter to his face when Peter acted hypocritically. Peter, the chief of the apostles, appointed by Jesus to be the leader of the Christian movement as it went out into the world, I withstood him to his face when I saw that he was not living the implications of the gospel message out in the way that he should. Jesus gave me this ministry. He commissioned me to fulfill it. My gospel is the same as theirs. And that message is so important that at one point I called Peter out when he wasn't living in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, he quotes exactly what he said to Peter in verse 14. And I want you to note that if you're using one of our Bibles here, the quotation marks end at the end of verse 14. And he goes on, but if you're using another version of the Bible, most likely the quotation will continue on. And I personally think that all of verses 14 through the end of the chapter are recording what Paul said to Peter. It really doesn't make any differences to the meaning of the passage, but it does make more sense out of why he's speaking in terms like we and us as he goes through the passage. But he started in verse 14, if you... Though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, verses 15 through 17 are one kind of long run-on sentence that uses the phrase justified by faith three different times. And it's a bit confusing to read, but I'd like us to wrap our heads around it to try to understand what Paul is saying. You're a very fortunate congregation this morning because I don't usually use uh, these kinds of aids, but I'm going to use this just for your benefit today. This is a description, I think, in one sentence, kind of boiling down what it is Paul is teaching here and what he teaches elsewhere in the New Testament about how a person has a relationship with God. I'm going to summarize it this way. Sinful human beings are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, if you read the passage carefully, and if you read the New Testament carefully, you might ask, I I don't see the word alone in this passage, and that is true. There is no place where Paul uses the sentence, just as I wrote it up there, justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. 
But in order to be faithful to the words that Paul does use in communicating what he believes, I think it's necessary to add that word. His opponents were saying, basically, sinful human beings are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, plus something. Obedience to the law is what they said. But whether it's obedience to the law or any moral code, they were adding something to faith. And Paul makes it quite clear in this passage and many other places that uh, it is faith plus nothing that results in justification. Faith in Christ plus nothing. Jesus Christ alone. Now, that means that you might define this uh, position in this way. Faith results in justification which leads to obedience. That's the basic idea behind it. Faith results in justification, that is acquittal by God, acceptance by God, and that leads to a life of obedience. Now, in order to try to make this clear and understandable in contemporary terms, I'm going to continue an illustration I began last week, and then I promise I'm not going to do this every week. But I'm going to describe the difference between what this is saying and the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And the reason I'm doing that is not because I have any particular dislike or beef with uh, Catholics, but it's simply because many of us, including myself, were either born into a Catholic family or we married into a Catholic family, as in my case. And very often we go to family gatherings and there are discussions about why we go to a non-denominational church, what the difference is, and and that kind of thing. And really, last week and this week, provide an opportunity to bring out very clearly the difference between the teaching of the Catholic Church and what I'm just going to call biblical faith. You could call it evangelical Protestantism, but those words are, are so elastic today, it's hard to know what everyone thinks when you say it. I'm just going to say the biblical teaching, biblical faith. Now, Before I say it, I want to note one thing in addition to what I said last week. You always have to remember that there's a distinction between the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church or any teaching of a church. There's there's sometimes a distinction between the official teaching and what an individual Roman Catholic believes. So in saying today that I don't think the teaching of the Catholic Church on this point is correct and explaining why, I am not making any judgment on individual Catholics. They are all over the board when they answer this question. Just like people who come to a church like this, do not just by coming in and sitting down believe everything that I think or that I teach. It's the same way. Never assume that anyone sitting in any church necessarily understands or agrees with what's taught from the front. But having said that, here's the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. It might be stated this way. Sinful human beings are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, plus the works of love that faith produces. Now, I want you to note that uh, I put the words through Jesus Christ or in Jesus Christ in brackets And I did that simply because in the Catholic teaching, there is something called implicit faith. They they recognize that the 
Catholic teaching is so vast and it's contained in so many different documents and volumes of documents. And they have a, a teaching group called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome that in every generation define exactly what Catholics believe. They, they acknowledge that Catholic teaching is so vast that no individual believer would be expected to understand all of it. And so they believe that faith is implicitly meant to be in the church. A Catholic is meant to say, I believe what the church teaches, whether or not they understand everything that the church teaches. So sometimes they emphasize faith in Jesus Christ, and sometimes they simply emphasize faith. And that might confuse you when you read things. But more importantly, I want you to note that this sentence sounds very much like what I said earlier. It just adds some words. In fact, it agrees up to the point that sinful human beings are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Only where I added the word alone, they add plus the works of love that faith produces. And so I want to describe what this means if you use the same kind of terms that we used just a minute ago. This is essentially saying that faith plus obedience results in justification. So let's put these two positions right next to each other. Faith results in justification, which leads to obedience. That's what I said the biblical position is in Galatians chapter 3. Or faith plus obedience results in justification. And those two sound very similar, and they use the exact same three most important words in the sentence, but they put them in a different order. And it makes a tremendous amount of difference. And the difference could be described this way. In the first understanding, that faith results in justification, faith in Christ alone results in justification, which leads to obedience, you know that you are justified based on faith in Christ. When you trust in Christ by his promise, you can know that you possess what it is God promises to give, that is, acquittal from sin. Other things happened at that point, too along with justification. But connected with that is this sense of assurance that my sins are forgiven and they've been taken away by Christ. I belong to him. In the second, even though the same three words are used, the word order makes a great deal of difference because it says that you have to have faith and you have to add to that some obedience, the works of love that faith produces, the Catholic Church says, which are basically sort of a paraphrase of words used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. They say when you put those two things together, they result in justification. But the difference is I could never know in this life, I couldn't know until the final judgment, whether my faith has been accompanied by enough acts of obedience, works of love that faith produces, as to whether I'm justified. That's only something that I could find out at the final judgment. So for now, I cannot know if I'm acceptable to God, if I am actually his child, if I've been acquitted and cleansed of sin. I can't know that until the end. And that's why they're completely different. One says you're justified now, and that results in a change in lifestyle. The other one says if you believe and you live a life of obedience now, you may be justified in the end, and they're completely different. That's probably the most important thing to understand. Paul is saying here very clearly, we are justified by grace through faith in Christ plus nothing. No good intentions, 
No life of obedience, no following of a moral code, no sacraments, church going, reading the Bible, or anything like that. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ plus nothing. Now, what I want to come to is what are the implications of that? Because they're very important, and that's the point where Paul and Peter had a conflict. When it comes to implications, Peter was not a person who believed that you had to add obedience to faith. And that's what Paul means very clearly. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, we have come to understand that a person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So Peter and James as well, we find out in Acts chapter 15, and Barnabas in this passage, they all understood that. It was the implications of what that meant for life that they had trouble with. Now here's what happened Peter went to Antioch at some point, and Paul was there. And when he first went, he began to have fellowship with the Gentiles. Church in Antioch was a most important church, far more important than Jerusalem in the remainder of the New Testament. And the reason it was far more important, even though less is known about it, is that it was the first place where Jews and Gentiles mixed together in one group, in fellowship. Now, this was a test for Jewish believers, particularly those from Jerusalem, because it wasn't a mixed community there. It was made up of Jewish people, at least in the beginning, and not non-Jewish people. But you see, for a Jewish person growing up in the Jewish faith, they had been taught that they should live a lifestyle characterized by Torah, that is the law, the five books of Moses. They followed dietary laws. They kept festivals. They uh, were a part of temple worship and all of these things that went on in Jerusalem. And there was nothing in the gospel, nothing in the words of Jesus that told them they should stop doing those things. What the gospel taught them was that those things did not make them acceptable to God. They couldn't come to God through their works, but it didn't tell them you have to stop living that kind of lifestyle. So when Peter went up to a place where now he's with Gentiles and, and they're coming into church fellowship together, he has to determine... If I'm supposed, if I want to, I choose to keep dietary laws, how am I going to eat with Gentiles? And it became an issue. And Paul says, you are not living in step with the gospel. So under pressure of stricter Jewish Christians, Peter began to withdraw from table fellowship with the Gentiles. And Paul viewed this as an unwillingness to live by a central tenet of the gospel, which is justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. And one of the implications of that is that the Gentiles are not morally stained because they don't keep the law. If they are accepted in Christ, they are not morally stained. They don't need to add law-keeping and the dietary rules and all of those things. They are acceptable in Christ. Now, one of the things, one of the implications of this is that in God's world, Every human being is on the same level. When God looks at human beings, the way God sees things, every person in the world is on the same level. The Jews had a law that they thought made them distinct, that gave them a moral advantage. And in one sense, that was true. They did have a moral advantage. They had the words of God that told them what God desires of human, of human beings, but they figured that that gave them an in with God. The Gentiles didn't have that, and that put them in a different category. So they figured, we Jewish people are a bit closer to God, and if we add the gospel to that, it will get us there. But the gospel of justification through faith didn't simply mean that the Gentiles should be accepted along with the Jews. It did mean that. 
That's not all it meant. It meant more radically that the Jews should be included along with the Gentiles as sinners. It put everyone on the same level. In the mass of ordinary humanity, Jews are sinners, just like Gentiles, with a radical implication that follows. No amount of obedience can make you right with God, can make you more acceptable to God, can make your worship more acceptable to God. Only total reliance on Christ by faith can do so. So here's what that means. If you were a person whose mother began to take you to church nine months before you were born, and your daddy was a preacher, and you were born, you were birthed straight out onto the communion table, (laughs) knocking over the cup on the way and spilling the contents on yourself, and you have... uh, been faithful and read your Bible and prayed every day and you've only seen PG-rated movies and not Disney ones. And when it, you know... And that's the kind of person you are when it comes to your justification. You are in no better position than the man who didn't know who his father was, whose mother was a drunk, who was birthed right out on the bar and as he slid down the bar, he knocked over Captain Morgan and spilled the contents on himself. And he's grown up with drunken debauchery and immorality and didn't know any better. When it comes to standing before God, you are in no different position than that person. You are no worse off than he is, and you are no better off because you both need a Savior. That's the implication of the gospel. Now, I'm talking strictly within the limits of justification this morning. I'm talking about acceptance with God. This is an implication. Everyone is on the same level because immorality and self-righteousness are both sin. I need to add, there are great advantages to growing up in a loving Christian home. Some of us didn't have that and regret it. It's just that whatever those advantages are, they're not justifying. They don't make you a Christian. There are no second-generation Christians. Every person must deal with his soul and God directly and immediately. Whatever advantages there are, they don't equal salvation. That's the first implication. Everyone is in the same position before God. And the second implication of this passage has to do with the purpose of the law. It begins to answer the objection How could you do away with a standard of behavior? If you say God is going to accept you on the basis of Jesus Christ and not on the basis of your behavior before God, how can you do that? God himself gave the law. Life fills us with the understanding that our behavior is going to determine in many ways the way in which we're accepted and we have opportunity and responsibility in life. It answers the question, why did God give us the law? Why is it that no amount of law-keeping can justify anyone? So look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now, essentially, what he's saying is, answering is, what happens if I set aside the law as a standard of acceptability? If I am saying that you're justified through faith in Christ, and not in the law, if I set aside the law as a standard of behavior as a Jewish person, aren't I saying I'm just like a Gentile sinner? Isn't it just put me in a category of being like everyone else who doesn't have the direction of God? And Paul goes on, not at all, certainly not. That's not the way you should see it. Or if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
Now, this is a complex passage, and I want to make it simple. But let me just note essentially what the basic idea is there. If I add law to grace, if I say it's Christ plus my obedience to some moral law, what happens in the end is I don't become righteous, I prove that I'm a sinner. How could he say that? He could say that because the purpose of the law was to show us our sin. That's the radical thing Paul came to see as he learned the gospel from Jesus. And as he reflected on how he thought back about life, and he tried to put together, okay, God gave us this law, and yet the law doesn't make us righteous. We can keep it, but it, it doesn't accomplish what it is we think it's going to accomplish. The law only showed me my sin. He had seen this instruction as a way to get to heaven, but he found that as he compared his life to it, it, it wasn't matching up. And it's the simple idea that God didn't give us his law to tell us what to do so that we could do it and be saved in the end. God gave us his law for the purpose of showing us that we are sinful. A law is a prescription. It's not a cure. Or you might say the law is a diagnostic tool. It's not a cure. The law is like a thermometer. Even if you eat a thermometer, it's not going to make you better right? You use a thermometer to determine whether you are sick. And if the thermometer shows that you have a temperature of 103, you certainly are sick. But that's all the thermometer can do is tell you that you're sick. If you take a pill, a Motrin, an Advil, or whatever it is you take, that is a cure. And the gospel is a cure. The law is just a thermometer. This is a point made over and over in the New Testament. The law condemns us. It isn't because there's anything wrong with the law any more than there's anything wrong with a thermometer. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's holy, righteous, and good. It reflects the will of God. But what it does is it shows us that we really can't match up to what God wants. And so many people think of the Christian faith as though what happened is Jesus came and he said, all right, maybe those ten things that that I gave you in the Old Testament were, were too much. I mean, 10 is a big number, and it's hard to keep in your mind, you know, all at one time, those 10 things. So I'm going to simplify it for you. I'm going to give you a new law, and and it's got two parts. It's really just one law, and those two parts are love God and love your neighbor. That's many people's conception of what Jesus did. And what he was saying is, love God and love your neighbor, and in the end, I'll accept you. That's not what he was saying. He was simply saying, you know, the summary of all these 10 is this, love God and love your neighbor, but those condemn us just as much as this. Because we look at our hearts and we say, yes, I want to love people, and there are times when I do, but how many times I've gone through life have I hurt people's feelings? Have I sinned against them? In in my thoughts, in my actions, in my words, how many times have I done that? And how many times have I turned my back on God? And even that is not meant to be a cure. It just shows us our sin. And that's why he says, verse 19, Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. When the law did its work, when it really accomplished what it was supposed to, it showed me that I was unacceptable to God. I fell short of his holy standard. I was dead in sins. And then the words of Jesus begin to mean something when he said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son of of Man gives life to whom he will. But life has to come from something outside of us. 
we don't produce life by being obedient to God. That just shows us our sin. And so the passage ends, verse 21, by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If the law was a cure, then I wouldn't need Christ. And that's why any time a person answers a question like, on what basis do you think God will accept them? Any time a person answers that question and they don't include Jesus, the answer is wrong. Because Jesus wouldn't mean anything if God gave us the law so that we could do it and be accepted by him in the end. And then he says in that famous verse, verse 20, that kind of summarizes it all, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, when Christ died on the cross, my own individual sins were put on the cross there in him by the action of God. He died for me. I have been crucified With Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said that what the gospel does is it allows the law to do its work. And the law says you are condemned before God. And then the gospel comes in and Christ says, I am your acceptability before God. And when we find ourselves trusting in Christ... Rather than our good intentions and our desires and whatever moral code we have. Rather than trusting those things and thinking, well, certainly God will accept me because I'm a fine fellow. But trusting instead in Christ, it leads to a reorientation of values so radical that that's the only source out of which any transformation of life can come. We see that all of our sins, all of them, past, present, and future, were taken by the Son of God on the cross. We see that all accusations that could ever be made against us are removed. As if someone could say, there's no way this man deserves heaven. He deserves hell. He deserves damnation for turning from God. And the response from heaven is, that is absolutely true. He does deserve that. Yes, she does deserve that. But look at Jesus. Jesus took their sins. Or look, she stumbled and fallen again. Just like before, she turned her back on God again today in the way that she spoke to that person. Are you going to continue to love her regardless of that fact? And God speaks back, absolutely, because Jesus paid for her sins. Every bit of it, I'm going to continue to work in her life. And Paul says, it's all because we are joined to Christ. That's the truth that makes justification work. We are united to Christ. And so he means in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I'm joined to Christ so that what I possess is everything that he is, all of his keeping of the law, all of his perfect life and his death on the cross for sins and his resurrection from the dead. So you have to get your eyes off of yourself and off of your intentions and desires and put your eyes on Christ. In yourself, you are sinful and guilty and lost. You're unable to disentangle yourself from the threads of sin that as you move through life so entwine themselves around your behavior and your thinking and the way that you speak to people that you're you're caught up in that and you have to look to Christ because it's only in Christ that you are forgiven and cleansed and free. Justified. For by grace, you're justified through faith in Christ.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. That while this message is uh, something we don't automatically understand because it is so unlike our usual experience of life, yet you say it is the way that you work with sinful human beings. That you could never accept anyone except by perfect obedience. And we know that there is only one who in our place lived that life of perfect obedience. And he was perfectly acceptable to you, but it also means that he was qualified to bear the sins of many. We thank you for that. It's my prayer that you would disentangle people's hearts and minds from their own behavior and works as a basis of acceptance before you. That while that is for many people sort of a process, I pray that you would continue that process in people's hearts and lives, and they would continually more and more see until it finally dawns on them like the brightness of a cloudless day that acceptance with God is based on Jesus Christ plus nothing. I pray that you would work in that way so that there would be a sense of freedom, assurance, conviction, that if that is true, then I have a foundation on which to live for God. Without it, everything else is is just um, shifting sand that make your way through. I pray that you would do that in hearts here. I pray this in Jesus' name.